Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Would you please follow along with me as I read from Acts 18? This is God's word, and it's eternally true. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, they shook off, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean, for now I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sancrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He set, sea from Ephesus, he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region in Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's chilly, isn't it? Snuggle in to the person. So today we're going to be, uh, Paul is going to come from Athens to Corinth. We're still on the second missionary journey. Then he's going to come down to Sincrea uh, to get on a ship, gets his hair cut there, goes over to Ephesus, and then travels down to Caesarea, to Jerusalem, up to Antioch. And at this point, he starts what's understood as the third missionary journey, which it it alludes to in the passage. And also at the end of the chapter, we'll have uh, Apollos going from Ephesus back to probably Corinth. So that gives you an idea 
where everybody's traveling through this chapter, okay? So, Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth, and he finds there a Jew named Aquila, who had come from Italy. He's a believer, with his wife Priscilla, also a believer, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and they were tent makers like Paul. Nobody is sure who founded the church in Rome. Uh, it could be that the Christians who started off in Rome at a very early time may have been some who had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and had gone off to Rome, and the church might have been established there, but it's obvious that uh, Aquila and Priscilla were believers, that they had come from Rome as believers, and there is evidence of a strong presence of home churches in Rome as early as uh, in the 40s AD. And so we're looking at a time now that's a decade later, a, a whole decade later. Rome uh, wanted to expel the Jews, and the Jews, weren't, and the Jews and the Christians weren't seen because there wasn't such a Gentile presence of Christians in Rome, and there wasn't such a distinction between Jews and Christians at that time. The Jews and Christians were just seen as one unit by Rome. And often they would be annoying to the Romans. So they would, uh, the Romans would want to get rid of them from time to time. They could have been a roaming, uh, annoying because they were monotheistic. They could have been annoying because they had a moral code that they lived by. They could have been annoying because they were evangelistic about these things and they were disruptive. But they were annoying to the Romans and this is what caused this expulsion that sent Aquila and Priscilla out of Rome. And they ended up down in Corinth. Now, they are probably the most celebrated, famous couple in the New Testament. Uh, not a lot is written about a lot of couples in the New Testament. What's the most infamous couple in the New Testament? Ananias and Sapphira. And it's funny because there are so few pairings of names like that. It's, if I get them confused in this sermon, forgive me for it, okay? But the fact is they just come off your tongue together, so you have to watch out. And they're not names that... Uh, we, do we have any Priscilla's? I'll bet we don't have any Sapphira's. Okay. So, so these two are there in Corinth, and Paul joins them. Now, it says that Paul... Is his, he's trained in working with tents or leather. And why would Paul have an understanding of such a blue-collar occupation when he was obviously such a learned man? I mean, he'd learned from the best, right? And he had had business as what we would understand as a white-collar kind of job, even to the point that in his prosecuting of, of Christians, he was a kind of a white-collar prosecutor. He was sent with, with papers to go get Christians, right? Uh, how does he end up being a tent maker? Well, it's not that he just picked it up in Corinth. It was not uncommon for Jewish fathers to train their sons in some kind of vocation. So even if they were going to be uh, in the university or in, in the public uh, leadership, even if they were gonna be teachers, they would have something that would be very solid that they could turn to to make money. So likely that was the case with Paul. And so Paul was working with them, making tents, but on, on weekends, he would go into the synagogue. Whenever he could, he'd go into the synagogue, and he would reason with them, trying to persuade them. Silas and Timothy had been called by Paul to leave Berea and follow him. So Berea, up north, and you have come down to Athens, and then over to Corinth. He had called for, he had sent people to get Timothy and Silas and have them come and meet him in Corinth. They ended up finally getting to Corinth. We don't know if they were there when he was in uh, Athens, but, but we, they ended up getting to him in Corinth. And so at that point, Paul has some relief. We, we infer that he had some relief from tent making because it says at that point, he went full time completely devoting himself to the word. And we, 
we use that phrase. Have you ever heard the, ter- the phrase of a pastor, he's a tent maker? You ever heard that phrase? This is where it comes from. If, if pastor is bivocational, he has to work somewhere else to make money to help him to support his work in preaching and teaching, he's called a tent maker. It's a tent making ministry. Well, Paul was, ha- Paul was able to go full time. And so he went full time preaching and teaching and trying to persuade. Many of us uh, have a concept of trying to persuade people in conversations. Did you ever have a speech class in high school? Speech class in college, maybe? Uh, You get a speech class, and they teach you about all different kinds of speeches, like informative speeches, entertaining speeches, motivational speeches, uh, but persuasive speeches are interesting. Paul was trying to persuade them. He was trying to win them over. He was informing them. His highest goal, though, was for them to be persuaded to believe on Christ, and this was his single occupation as he was there. He did this for a while in the synagogue. We don't know for how long, but eventually they resisted him. Eventually they caught on to the implications of what Paul was saying to them. And they started to resist him. In fact, they went further than resisting him. It says that they actually blasphemed, that they blasphemed. Remember that earlier in his life, before he had been interrupted by Jesus Christ, Paul was a persecutor of the Christians. And one of the things that Scripture tells us that Paul would try to do when he would go and find groups of Christians is that he would try to get them to blaspheme. He was trying to get some offense from them so that he could take them and have them thrown into prison. So Paul understood what blasphemy was. He completely understood what it was. And he didn't have to try to get these people to blaspheme. They were resisting what he was saying. He was trying to get them to follow Jesus Christ, but they opposed him and they began slandering Christ and reviling against him. To blaspheme is to profane the sacred with irreverence or disrespect. And so, Paul writes to the Corinthians, later in, uh, in, the, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he writes to them and he says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Jews were stumbling here. Paul was preaching to them in Corinth, and they were stumbling, because Christ preached is a stumbling block to the Jews. Why a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, because they did not pursue God by faith. They did not pursue righteousness by faith. They pursued righteousness, they thought, by the law, and they thought they could attain it. And so Paul comes into the synagogue, and he says, guess what? You can't attain it through the law. You can't have it through the law. And that's a stumbling stone. That's a stumbling block to them. You can't behave so well and, and comply with what you think God expects with, of you so well that he will receive you to himself as righteous. You cannot do it. And they were stumbled. Their true condition was exposed, and they knew it. And rather than repenting, they blasphemed. You and I are not unfamiliar with blasphemy by both Jews and Greeks. We not, might not be aware of it. But we are constantly bombarded by blasphemies from Jews and Greeks. There are people out there who, upon hearing of the truth of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, say, that's foolish. 
He died on a cross? That's foolish. He was the only holy and sinless man? Foolish. And they just laugh it off. They're Greeks. They're all around us. And then there's a whole other group of people around us that are Jews in like this situation. And they're looking at it and they, they realize that there's a problem with themselves, but they think that the solution is in themselves. And so they, they hear the message of Jesus Christ and they don't say that that's foolish. They say, I don't want it. That makes me have to deal with me. That means that that's not in me to be righteous. And it's a stumbling block to them. And so they blaspheme. We have this all around us, blasphemies. Constantly, we're bombarded with them. Blasphemies against any authorities, blasphemies against teachers, against preachers, against parents, against officials, against pastors and elders, and against God. Constant bombardment. Every cartoon or movie or sitcom where a father in a household or any authority is ridiculed as a consequence of their position is blasphemy. Do you understand? That is blasphemy. And, it's, and that's all aside from the most obvious kinds of blasphemies that we hear that have to do with the vain use of God's name, of Jesus' name, of Christ, of, of minced oaths that are derivatives of these names that are constant in our, in our casual chatter and conversation and jokes. Blasphemy. You, your children, hear it. You, your children, do it. Blasphemy. And I say this and you know it's true. And how do you feel about it? Do you need to, you need to get me to shut up? Or do you say, oh, I'm so glad that Jesus is right, my righteousness, okay? But we, we, don't, we don't have the response that we used to have to blasphemy. It's not like we're moved the way we ought to be. It's not like we're disturbed the way we ought to be. It's not like we're ruffled the way we ought to be or shaken or dismayed. Because it's such a prevalent marinade in our lives, everywhere. We ought not have a part with blasphemy. So what does Paul do? He shakes out his garments. He says, done with you. I'm done with you. And he went to the house of a Gentile next to the synagogue named Titius Justus who was a God-fearing Gentile. And he gave Justice this message that he had been preaching. Probably he heard him in the synagogue. He was probably a God-fearing Gentile and he was listening in the synagogue. And Justice said, oh, can you imagine his joy at not only hearing an honest definition of the problem, but also of God's provision in Christ as the solution, and that he, a Gentile, could be a full, legitimate beneficiary of the righteousness of Christ, and that he, a Gentile, could be an adopted son of God. And he received it. And so, the church began in Corinth. Many churches have begun this way. An assembly of religious people gathered together and they're studying along and somebody comes in and talks about what? They talk about the only righteousness that will bring you to reconciliation to God being the righteousness of Jesus Christ and it's completely outside of you. 
they start speaking to that religious group. And some of the people there will say, that's foolishness. And some of the people there will say, that's a stumbling block. And some of the people there will say, oh, finally. Finally, somebody's told me the truth. I didn't have any hope. And so a church begins. When Annie and I were in Toledo, we were in a church plant in Toledo, we shared a building, it was a public building that you could rent, and we shared it with several organizations. But one of them was what was understood to be a cult, was called the, the Church of God Armstrong. Anybody ever heard of the Church of God Armstrong? Little kids wouldn't, uh, middle-aged kids, would, people wouldn't, but old people with gray hair would remember Armstrong. He was, he's dead now, right? I don't know if there's still some uh, residual traces of him around or not. Yes, his son. But one of the things that was happening at that time is that there was a, uh, an introduction in the Church of God Armstrong of the righteousness that comes by faith through Jesus Christ. This church, before that time, they lived Old Testament. They worship on Saturdays. They followed all these dietary laws. They didn't eat any pork, no pork. So while this was happening, I went into the, they worshiped, I went into their room when they were getting ready to worship one Saturday because I was, my office was in the same building. I went into their room and I was seeing one of the young men. And he was talking to me and he was all excited. He had heard, he had read. It's not like they didn't have a Bible that contained the New Testament. He had just read it alive. And he read the epistles and he read Paul's letters, and he just was telling me all about, I didn't know that I could have the righteousness of Christ. I had my first pork yesterday. That's what he said. I said, what'd you have? He said, a McDonald's burrito. Churches begin when people hear the truth. And so not only was justice, did justice come to faith, but Crispus, a leader of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Paul's persuasion was working and was being blessed by God. And, and the people were believing. And this prominent synagogue official believed. And later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about baptizing Crispus. And we don't know, but it must have been that Paul, at this point, started to be fearful. We can only infer it from the text. Because in verse 9, it says that the Lord said to him in a vision, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. I have many people in this city, and so Paul stayed there for a year and a half. He just stayed there for a year and a half. Well, he was afraid. He had already, on several other occasions, suffered great pains and persecutions, stones and whips, and uncomfortable prison stays, certainly reviling and rejection. And he would again see these things happen in his life, but this time, instead of giving him grace for suffering, the Lord gave him the promise of safety. He, I guess, thought Paul needed a respite. So he said, they're not going to lay hands on you while you're here. I have a work here I want you to do, and just rest in me. So he gave him the promise of safety. He revealed to Paul his intention of having a church raised up in Corinth by telling him that he had many people in that city. And we can only understand this to mean many who, like Crispus and Justice, would believe and become disciples of Christ. Many that the Lord knew that he had secured to himself. Matthew Henry, the theologian, writes uh, about this. He says, in this city, though it be a very profane, wicked city, full of impurity, and the more so for a temple of Venus there, to which there was a great resort, yet in this heap that seems to be all chaff, there is wheat. In this ore that seems to be all dross, there is gold. Let us not despair concerning any place when even in Corinth, Christ had much people. Much people. Have you considered the many people 
of Bloomington, of Monroe County. Aren't, in fact, some of you some of the many people? <laughs> you are. And God knew you were here. And Christ knew that he had secured you to himself. And there are many, many more. Have you thought about your children being like Christmas children in his household? To God. And yet, we don't look at Bloomington that way, do we? <laughs> at the end of a year and six months, Paul would leave. Did that mean he had filled up all of the many people? That they had all been claimed? Well, we know that's not true because the story goes on. And so God has many people yet in Bloomington. So verse 12 says that while Galileo was proconsul, the Jews rose up with one accord against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Why were they opposed to Paul? Well, he was succeeding. Notice what they said about him. They said, he persuades men. Remember, he went there to the synagogue to do what? To persuade men. He was succeeding, but it was more than just an annoyance to them. As I've gotten older, I've started to get into my car, and before I turn on the engine, I buckle my seatbelt. Do you know why? As I've gotten older, that little dinging noise when, that comes on has been more and more of an annoyance to me. Every, all kinds of little noises are annoyance to me, so much so that I don't buckle my seatbelt as I drive down the driveway like I used to. More often, I buckle it before I turn on the key. Because it's annoying. It's annoying. Was Paul an annoyance to the Jews? No. They weren't just annoyed. They were triggered. They were triggered. With one accord, with one mind, with one impulse. This is characteristic of a mob. We have to shut this guy up. He is intolerable. Why? Well, because not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's what Paul says in Romans. They rejected the righteousness of Jesus Christ and sought a righteousness of their own. Paul himself had once had a zeal for God that was not in accordance with knowledge. The message of the inadequacy of their own righteousness and the necessity of the substituting righteousness of Christ was intolerable to them and appeared to them to be contrary to the law. That was a good place for them to hang their anger on, right? They thought keeping the law would save them. Paul told them otherwise. They were triggered. They were triggered. Unlike at other times when Paul is brought before uh, the courts, this time he was going to say something, but he didn't get a chance. It says, when he was about to open his mouth, the whole group was addressed by Galileo. And he said, if it was a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you, but if there are questions or words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And this isn't a place for us to like hang our hat on separation of church and state, okay? This is just, this guy was bothered. That's all. Didn't want to deal with it. He didn't see it as his as his sphere, and so he just said, go away. Go away, you're annoying. He was annoyed. But before they left, they all took hold of Sosthenes, a leader in the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat, but Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. So it's a strange thing that we don't see often happen here, but that he's there, and he says, go away, and before they leave, they beat somebody, and he just says, okay, go ahead, beat him. I don't care. Just so long as you go away. That's what he wanted them to do is just go away. But who's Sosthenes? Because it says that Sosthenes is also the leader of the synagogue. Well, 
There are three, at least three possible solutions as to who Sosthenes was. One is that Sosthenes was Crispus, but that he had received a, baptiz- a baptized name, that Paul had given him a different name, Sosthenes. That's one. Another is that he was a leader of another synagogue in Corinth, which could have been the case, who also came to Christ. A third, and the one I prefer, is that Sosthenes was just a co-leader of the same synagogue with Crispus, and that uh, he also had come to faith as Paul was there. Paul references Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians 1 distinctly from Crispus. So the two are referenced in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians as distinct persons. So Paul remained many days longer, and he took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sacria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. We don't know what happened with Silas and Timothy at this point. Maybe they stayed on in Corinth uh, to help in the establishment of the church. We just don't know. But we do know that Priscilla and Aquila did go with Paul. He got his hair cut in Sincrea as part of a vow. This is probably hearkening back to what we, we heard about a few weeks ago and the fact that Paul had Timothy circumcised. It wasn't that he believed Timothy needed to be circumcised, but he did it because of the context that they were ministering in. And Paul was probably continuing to live his life and to be able to minister in the context of his approaching the Jews by doing certain things and keeping this vow was likely one of them. And Priscilla and Aquila went with him and they came to Ephesus. And he entered the synagogue and and reasoned with the Jews. This was Paul's mode of of operating. He was going into the synagogue first to persuade and in Ephesus, they asked him to stay a longer time, but he did not consent. Taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus, and he landed in Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Well, that little phrase, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch, is what makes us believe that he went to Jerusalem. It doesn't say Jerusalem there, but in uh, Caesarea, to go up and greet the church. Anytime you went to Jerusalem, you went up. Because that was not a matter simply of elevation, it was a matter of its uh, uh, preeminence over other places. So you went up to Jerusalem, okay? Uh, And he went then from Jerusalem down to Antioch. So he went up to Jerusalem, greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. And uh, at that point then, Paul, in verse 23, launches out into the third missionary journey, which uh, we're not going to be dealing with this morning. But he had left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. Here's where we have the arrival of Apollos, a Jew, an Alexandrian Jew, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately concerning the things about Jesus, but acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he went out to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos was a Jew who understood the way of the Lord. He was well-educated. He was clearly well-versed in the scriptures. He taught accurately the things about Jesus, even though it says he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. Well, we have questions. What did he know about Jesus? What didn't he know about Jesus? Does he ever get baptized in Trinitarian baptism? I have a little excerpt from F.F. Bruce, a theologian, about this. It's, It's helpful. Apollos' understanding of Christianity deviated in at least one important respect from the form of Christianity based in Jerusalem, which is depicted for us in Acts. The only baptism of which he knew was the baptism administered by John the Baptist. Baptism in the name of Jesus, as proclaimed by Peter on the day of Pentecost, was evidently unknown to him. It may seem strange, no doubt, that someone who was indwelt and empowered by the Spirit should nevertheless know nothing of Christian baptism. But primitive Christianity was made up of many strands, and of some of those strands we have little or no knowledge. 
Even after his further instruction, Apollos is not said to have received Christian baptism. We just don't, aren't told. And what does he mean by strands, many strands? Well, at that time in the primitive church, things didn't conform to a perfect image. There were people who had this and this and this and this and had come from this place and this place. I said earlier that probably Aquila and Priscilla were Christians, possibly because somebody from the day of Pentecost had gone out, but what would they know about the Council of Jerusalem? And remember, Paul is going and spreading that, those truths about Christ. Bruce goes on and writes, Priscilla and Aquila, who continued to attend the synagogue in Ephesus after Paul's departure, listened to Apollos when he began to expound the scriptures there and were greatly impressed by the learning and skill which he devoted to the defense of the gospel. No one else in their experience came so near their friend Paul in this ability. As they listened, they became aware of some gaps in his knowledge, accurate as it was. So they took him home and set forth the way of God to him more accurately still. Probably because Paul himself had set forth the way of God more accurately to them. Very likely. So they took Apollos home. So now we have the question of Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila. Six times their names are used in the New Testament. Four times Priscilla is listed first, the wife, and two times Aquila is listed first, and there are lots of people that make, uh, make many things of this. So I'll tell you what they make of it, and then we'll, we'll go on. But I want to say before that, I want to say Aquila and Priscilla seem to do everything together, from their business to their engaging with the church, to their instructing and hosting in their home. They even, it says later that they were, they're, 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 the church that meets in their home is actually greeted. And then, tradition has it that on the day they died, they were both martyred together. These two people were seen as a very together couple, okay? But back to the issue about why Priscilla may be named first in four of the six references. Some people say, well, she was more eloquent than her husband. Others say she was more intelligent than her husband. Others say she was more educated than her husband. Others say she was from a higher social class than her husband. Maybe it's just that Luke liked how Priscilla and Aquila rolled off the, his, you know what I'm saying? I've noticed this when I talk about couples that I get a, a way of saying their names in an order, and I don't know that I have some hidden, some kind of principle inside of me, you know. Well, all of these things may have been true, and perhaps none of them were true. We just aren't told. We just know that this is how their names were listed. And when it comes to this text, our world only sees one little sentence. And that is, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. Why does our world only focus on this sentence? Well, because it says that Priscilla, a woman, was instrumentally used of God in clarifying Apollos' understanding of Christianity. That's why they focus on it. Wait a minute. How does that fit with 1 Timothy 2? I mean, didn't Paul instruct Priscilla and Aquila? And then in 1 Timothy 2, he says, but I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What's going on here? Well, these two things are completely in accord. But before I talk about how they're in accord, I want you to look with me at how our world abuses them, okay? Because this is what you hear constantly. This is the stuff that's going on around you constantly. This is one of the tsunamis that rage around you all the time. We all know that homosexualists try to claim that David and Jonathan's relationship was erotic because 
they cannot conceive of a non-erotic masculine love that is greater than an erotic one. Do you understand what I just said? It's inconceivable to them. And so they have to pervert the account. They have to. In the same way, feminists claim Priscilla as a pioneer of feminism because they cannot conceive of a relationship that values the inferior in rank or place as much as the superior while still maintaining distinctions in rank or place. Do you follow that? You see what I'm saying? Let me read it again. In the same way feminists claim Priscilla as a pioneer of feminism because they cannot conceive of a relationship that values the inferior in rank or place as much as the superior while still maintaining distinctions in rank or place. This is why feminists always get Galatians 3.28 completely wrong. Our status in Christ as revealed in Galatians 3, you know, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free, right? Our status in Christ as revealed in Galatians 3 is not connected to rank or place. In Christ's kingdom, distinctions of rank and place do continue, but all the members are equally accepted into Christ, becoming children of God through faith in him, regardless of race or sex or economic status or etc. Ironically, the next verse... Galatians 3.29 shouts patriarchy because it then says that they're in this Christ and therefore they are children of who? Abraham. (laughs) That's got to be annoying. Do you understand? They're just just off the track. It's, It's the tsunami around you, but you need to understand it. You can't be uh, influenced by this because it's, it's just raging. Christians are not on some continuum halfway between feminism and red pill. If you don't know what red pill is, it's, it's, it's not even hyper-patriarchy. Red pill is more like an inappropriate form of domination mastery preeminence. It's, it is another thing altogether. I don't even want to say it's hyper-patriarchy because that gives it too much. Okay? We're not, Christians are not halfway between fem- feminists and red pill. Do you understand? We're not halfway between the two. Red pill ignores Galatians 3.28 and so ignores and rejects equal status in Christ within God's patriarchy. Feminists misinterpret Galatians 3.28 and so reject rank and place in God's patriarchy. They're both completely wrong. Completely wrong. And you have to understand it, that we are not related to them. They're not in, they don't come to the reunion. Okay? We're not related to them. God is unapologetically patriarchal. He would just appreciate it if we would let him teach us what patriarchy means. He is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name, after all. We're not halfway between. Christian orthodoxy is the third rail. You know the third rail where the power runs? You don't want to touch the third rail. All the power of the kingdom of God is in the structures that he has made in Jesus Christ. Men are never better men towards women than when they are truly Christian. Men are never better men towards women than when they are truly Christian. Women are never better women towards men than when they are truly Christian. Jews are never better Jews toward Gentiles than when they are truly Christian. Gentiles are never better Gentiles toward Jews than when they are truly Christian. Eh, Daniel? 
Masters are never better masters toward slaves than when they are truly Christian. Slaves are never better slaves toward masters than when they are truly Christian. Do you understand? So what's wrong with Priscilla being part of Apollos' education? Nothing. Why? Because the text says that they took him aside and privately instructed him. The two words you need to look at there are they and aside. They and aside. First of all, in the context of Timothy, this this section is the context of public worship and instruction. And it wasn't public. It was in private. Secondly, they did it. And everything that Priscilla did, she did, with her husband presiding in the interaction. And it was absolutely appropriate. She went with, she went not alone, but with the authority of her husband, and they did it privately. Private instruction in this context is no violation of the Holy Spirit's prohibition in 1 Timothy, where the context of the prohibition is public. Priscilla, a godly Christian woman, is used powerfully in knowledge and discernment for the benefit of a man. Celebrate it. It is modest and feminine. Instead of the, 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 the classical phrase we all know, I am feminist woman, hear me roar. What? I am feminine woman in Christ. I don't have to roar. The lion of the tribe of Judah does all the roaring necessary. And that's true for all of us. Do you understand? Now, a word about this development in our marriages. Priscilla and Aquila enjoyed, obviously enjoyed, a companionable marriage. All the things they did together. Listen, do you think they fought? Come on. All the things they did together. And each Christian couple should aspire, each, aspire, each couple aspiring to be a Christian couple, each couple that is a Christian couple, each old Christian couple should aspire to have a marriage that would be like this marriage. But how did it come to be? I don't think it just came to be. They, they, it came to be because these two Christian believers gave themselves to submitting to what God said about their sex and about their roles in the marriage. And that's what made it so effective. That's why we can look at them now and see them as such an example to us. Do you think they were afraid? Do you think Aquila had to work to help his wife at the points of her... Do you think Priscilla had strengths? Three of us? Do you think Priscilla had strengths? I think she was a powerful woman. Do you think Priscilla had weaknesses? Do you think Aquila did his work as a husband to help his wife with her weaknesses so that her strengths could abound? You see, this is what is before us in our marriages. Doing this work, submitting ourselves to Christ, figuring it out, but it's scary. It's scary business. We're afraid about what kind of conflict is going to come out of it. We're afraid about what kind of uh, success, what will happen if it succeeds. We're afraid about what will happen if it fails. There'll be places where it'll succeed, there'll be places where it fails, and it's scary. But God is loving. (laughs) He's patient. He designed marriage to be a picture of something incredible, the relationship of Christ and his church. So couples, husbands, wives, commit yourselves to working with your spouse. Who knows but that you'll host an Apollos in your home? 
Who knows but that a church will meet in your home. We have many people here who host home groups. Do you realize that's what Apollos, or that's what Priscilla and Aquila did. Often they were hosting the church, okay? Who knows whether you'll go into business together. Who knows what God has in store for you? But he is good. And you should give yourself to understanding who you are in Christ. And give yourself to understanding who you are as a husband and as a wife. And give yourself and commit yourself to those responsibilities and to that relationship in the way that God designed it. As the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. The chapter then ends with Apollos. Listen, don't think it's insignificant, the work that Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos. Because he goes then from Ephesus back across the water to uh, Corinth. And we know from the testimony of Scripture that he does a work in Corinth. And how much of that work was was uh, vastly improved by the work that Priscilla and Aquila did with him. And that Paul had likely done with them before. And so submit yourself to these things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you today that we have the righteousness of Christ offered to us that we, laying hold of it, may have a righteousness that's from outside of us that allows us to be acceptable in your sight. We didn't have this in us, Father. Lord, help us. Make us to live this righteousness and in the context of it, to live as godly and to be transformed and sanctified in this world so that we may be useful to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.